from our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Susan Slesser, the San Francisco Chronicle A's beat writer, is a stone-cold badass. I once asked Susan to speak to my wife's journalism students, and she got a call during her presentation, some breaking news, I think someone got named MVP. Instead of bailing on the kids or bailing on her editor, she managed to break the story while continuing to speak to the class. I invited Susan to help me induct Moneyball into the SF cinema greatest of all time, but this was also secretly a celebration of Susan, who speaks with me about her own love of the game. Now Moneyball, a sports movie with almost no sports, but it still gets by with dialogue like this. What's the problem? The problem is we have to replace three key players in our nope. lineup. What's the problem? Same as it's ever been. We've got to replace these guys with what we have existing. No, nope. what's the problem, Barry? We need 38 home runs, 120 RBIs, and 47 doubles to replace. The problem we're trying to solve is that there are rich teams and there are poor teams. Then there's 50 feet of crap. And then there's us. We recorded the podcast just hours before Cleveland broke the A's 20-game record win streak that is featured in the movie. We talk about that, just how good Brad Pitt got Billy Bean, and how badly Art Howe got screwed in this movie. I'm Peter Hartlob, and this is The Big Event. Susan Slusser, welcome to the Archive. I am so delighted to be here in the bowels of the Chronicle. It's great. The bowels of the Chronicle, I'm glad you're here. Um, we just, uh, we know you, we're friends. We, we socialize. Um, it's fun to bring you down here and show you some photos. Uh, we went through the Dave Stewart file. What, what struck you about him? We, we have all these photos of him from his playing career. So menacing. I mean, really, it, it makes me wonder what batters were thinking when they would dig in the box when they're facing somebody that looks that intimidating on the mound. I don't, I mean, there are very few pitchers that had that kind of death stare. And just the whole demeanor was so aggressive. Uh, and you kind of, you forget that so much time has passed. Um, you know, what what an absolute fearful presence he was. And just absolutely uh, ferocious man so and his body when he pitched it was like coiled we're looking at these photos and it's like there's this energy release that you know is about to happen and i feel like if i were a batter it would almost be like being in a horror movie like that's yeah. the like michael myers jason up there who's going to kill you well, i mean it's it... so funny I mean, everybody always remembers his a crazy great record against roger clemens roger clemens could not beat Stu. Um, uh-huh. It's, I think, one of the favorite things, one of Dave Stewart's favorite things of his entire career is the fact that Roger Clemens couldn't beat him, couldn't beat him during the regular season, couldn't beat him during the postseason, got frustrated, got thrown out of that one game during the playoffs. Um, and he's intimidating an opposing pitcher in the American League. <laughs> he doesn't hit against him. Yeah. But that's that's how much everybody was afraid of him, which is really funny because off the field, you couldn't find a nicer guy. Yeah, Pleasant, that's how it is, fun. though. Yeah. Al Adels is that way, too. I mean, I, I read about the fights, Al Adels from the Warriors. Someday I'm just going to do a story about all the fights he got in. Like, I mean, throwing people into the stands, and he's just the nicest guy. So... Um, Already we're off to a good A's conversation. I wanted to ask you that. I wanted to go back because I've known you and I can't imagine you not just being able to talk, you know, authoritatively and and 
with history about the A's? Well, uh, when I was I'm an only child, which maybe had something to do with it, although my dad was not a big sports fan. He was a, a you know, a casual sports fan. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was little, we were my, I was a Navy brat. We moved everywhere. You have to make new friends in every place you go. I think that might have had something to do with it. But we moved from Guam to Alameda when I was six years old. And um, that was in 1972. Mm-hmm. And as you'll recall, that was the start of a very good run for the Oakland A's. And I remember my dad getting immediately into it. And coming from Guam, we didn't get live sports events on Guam. It was a big deal when they suddenly broadcast like the Super Bowl a week later or something there. Uh-huh. And everybody would watch. And it was, a big, it was a big deal. So I thought live sports were amazing because they just didn't happen on, on Guam. Um, and my dad would watch some baseball. So I sat down and watched with him and he explained it to me. And the second he, ex- he explained it very well, he went into the details about sort of the batter pitcher matchups and you'll, something different might happen on this count and you might want to throw this pitch because this, the batter might be thinking he's going to get something else. Uh-huh. And I loved it from the second he explained it. And <laughs> from then on, I think my dad might have regretted it because all I'd wanted to do was watch baseball. And the next three years were, I mean, it was just, I, I couldn't have been in a better place to develop a passion for baseball. And we were 15 minutes from the Coliseum, so we went all the time. Do you, do you remember those games? Do you remember the first one? I remember the first one. It was funny. I, when you mentioned this uh, the other day that we might talk about this, um, I, I was sitting in the Coliseum in the press box the other day looking and remembering exactly where we walked out on the, in the second deck um, on the third base side. We walked out, and as I saw the field as a six-year-old, maybe a seven-year-old at that point, uh, I, you know, you see the green and you feel the field. I just felt like it was an absolute heaven. I couldn't imagine a better place. I was so excited. I, I still remember that feeling so clearly of just being overwhelmed by seeing it all stretched out right before me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, that's now it's my job. It's just, I can't, you know, sometimes I pinch myself. You forget in the day-to-day drudgery of your job, that sort of moment. But when that came back, I thought, oh, yeah, it was right over there. That was such a big deal for me. Are you able to bring it back? I I review movies and I have a similar, you know, I wanted to be a movie reviewer. I watched Siskel and Ebert. I didn't want to make movies. I wanted to review movies when I was a kid. And every once in a while, I'll just be in the theater, you know, the, the curtains, they're waiting for someone to come, whatever. And I'll just check myself, like just sort of just let my body relax and try and bring myself back to that. Are you capable of doing that or is this just a job at this point? It hits you um, in strange moments. Often when I'm in the dugout, like doing nothing, waiting. A lot of the sports writer's job is waiting. It's not, you know, the the very little little glamour uh, because much of it is standing around. But sitting in the dugout sometimes waiting, I'll think, like, this is amazing. I'm sitting here (laughs) right next to this beautiful Major League Baseball field. Um, you know, waiting to talk to some, to player X, it's, it's pretty astonishing, you know, that things get, you get caught up in real life or extra innings or a rain delay and you grumble, but it's, it's, I gotta say, it's really special. And so when you do have those moments where you kind of reflect a little bit on, wow, I'm at Fenway Park and look how gorgeous it is, or Pittsburgh Stadium is so phenomenal. Those are the times I think you go, wow, that's, um, this is pretty great. 
Were you, uh, as a kid, did you see a path like I'm gonna I'm gonna write about baseball or, or be involved with baseball? Did you see that path for yourself? And and uh, how did you how did you get the job at the Chronicle? I wanted to be a baseball play-by-play announcer, radio play-by-play announcer. So I actually, did, my high school had a radio station, and I even went to summer camp there before yeah. I started high school. So I I called Salinas Californian minor league games when I was a <laughs> like in junior high school a uh-huh. few times, which is crazy. Uh, and I did, I did, um, you know, play by play in high school and then in college at Stanford, I did, uh, football, basketball, and baseball. I was the color analyst for the, on the Stanford football broadcast, which seems crazy now in retrospect, but it was a blast. Uh, and then two world series winning college world series, Stanford teams. So that was phenomenal. And, uh, I also worked at the Stanford daily at the same time because Uh I was just going to do anything sports related. And I interned at KCBS. I interned at Channel 5 KPIX, which then in the 80s was a huge deal. That's the Channel 5 sports back in the day. That was the Wayne Walker sports gas. I mean, that was that was phenomenal. And I interned at the Sacramento Bee. And at the end of the Sacramento Bee internship, they offered me a full-time job. And as a 22-year-old, you don't turn down work. So yeah. I went, okay, I guess I'm a writer now. Do you think about that broadcast part? I do, but my um, college broadcast partner went on um, after college and became a minor league announcer, broadcaster, mm-hmm. and I think he was getting paid like 50 bucks a week. He was also like the PR guy, and he also was the morning sports guy on the radio station. Uh-huh. So he would be play-by-play guy for, uh, was a Quad City River Bandits. All night, do like practically like selling tickets and doing PR, call the game, and then get up at like five in the morning to do the sports report. And I thought, hmm, the Sacramento Bee thing sounds... <laughs> A lot better than that. And also, you know, it was 1988. I'm not quite sure how many minor league teams would have been looking to hire a woman and broadcaster, but I didn't try, so that's on me. I wanted to check with you. What year did you start with the A's, and at what point did the word Moneyball come in your head? Because we're <laughs> going to talk about the movie, but there was a book before the movie, and presumably somebody used the word before the book. So what was kind of your introduction to Moneyball? Well, I started full-time. I'd been an A's backup um, both at the B and then at the Chronicle for for several years. So I'd been around the A's a lot and then full-time starting in 99. And in 2002, Michael Lewis came over to write a New York Times – it was going to be a New York Times magazine piece Uh about the A's. Fantastic fellow. Everybody knows Michael Lewis from Big Short and all his – Liar's Poker, all all his other wonderful books. And – we all got to know him, and he sort of started then being there all the time, which we thought that was strange. And at some point he said, you know, this is turned – it kind of was going to be magazine. Now I think I might do a book. Didn't really think too much about it until the next year when the book came out. Uh-huh. And it was, of course, a huge sensation because it's Michael Lewis, and it, it was a great topic. Um, yeah. But that's the first – when the book came out was the first time I heard the phrase Moneyball. It's not something that people were walking around saying, we we do Moneyball here. Yeah. We knew about the, you know, the advanced metrics, yeah. um, which back then I think they were just calling sabermetrics. Yeah. Um, we knew uh, that they did more with less. That's always kind of been the ace thing going back all the way to Connie Mack. Uh, and we, you know, we knew Billy was, Billy Bean was, was kind of special when it came to wheeling and dealing and thinking outside the box. But uh, nobody said Moneyball until uh, – until the book, but that's, hey, that's what it takes. A, this is how Michael Lewis is a best-selling author. Yeah, author is. He yeah. finds these like fun little phrases or small little um, windows into a big topic and then uses that one thing to explain a whole, uh, you know, 
explosion that and in fact the book wound up having such a profound impact on the way baseball front offices work and uh-huh. uh, and pro sports i mean moneyball wound up kind of permeate permeating all of pro sports and even into the to some industry boardrooms it's it's really astonishing what the book did i i remember it and i remember that phenomenon i don't remember reading the book and thinking god this is going to be a great movie, <laughs> movie they no. should just make a, should make a ripping tale on this big screen well remember steven soderbergh was going to do it yeah and he was going to have everybody play themselves uh-huh. um which was baffling you know art Howe would play himself and this was you know several years on art Howe was no longer the ace manager yeah how is this all gonna work um and, but he was gonna maybe cast somebody to play billy uh-huh. and we all thought that sounded crazy but again you know it's a business book fundamentally moneyball is is first a business book and then a sports book but not one it's not you know it's not rudy it's yeah. not, uh, you know, there's no champ. As Eric Chavez is always quick to point out, that we don't, we didn't win anything at the end of it. <laughs> so it's not a traditional sports movie either. Yeah. Uh, and I thought it would never fly. When Brad Pitt got attached to it, of course, we were all extremely excited because it's Brad Pitt, but we all thought there is no way this ever gets made. Yeah. I, I think I actually bet people, and I hope nobody ever remembers that they did bet me. I bet, I'm <laughs> sure I bet people it was never going to get made. I, I, th- think people don't realize now because Moneyball has been made and the big short has been made and the social network kind of took some of the elements of Moneyball and took it forward and won you know a best picture Oscar but back then it it made no sense I mean it was like this is not a movie and yet it keeps you know a new director's attached maybe a new writer's attached but this thing goes forward how did how did the players and how did Billy Bean feel about it as it was getting closer? What what was kind of the buzz then? Well, I think there must have been some sort of point of no return where I think initially everybody was like, this isn't probably going to happen. This isn't going to wait. How, it's happening and you can't slow it down at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the Moneyball players were all gone at that point. So yeah. you'd see some of them in passing with other teams. Nick Swisher was uh, the first draft in the Moneyball draft class but that wasn't addressed really the main part of the book really was that moneyball draft class and that's not part of the movie really at all except for when you see the the very crazy stereotypical scouts talking about yeah. you know draft guys early on uh the good face and all of that yeah. um but really i think the, the players were sort of um baffled by the whole thing but then they were interested in who's gonna play me right uh-huh. um and re- there were no name guys except for uh, Chris Pratt playing Scott Hatterberg. But he wasn't Chris Pratt yet. He, he was, wasn't. Yeah. He was He was the guy from Parks and Rec. Yeah. Like, yeah. so... Uh, like, all the yeah. money, it looks like, went into the casting of Brad Pitt and yes. executive producer. Now, Paul Podesta was not pleased with uh, um, Jonah Hill being, yeah. getting his part. And that's why he's Peter Brand in yes. the movie, is Paul Podesta did not want any part of that and in the steven soderbergh version it was going to be dimitri martin yeah was going to play who's good he's been good and paulie podesta was thrilled about that he loved dimitri martin so he liked that idea he was not not all that on board with jonah hill who who wound up with an academy award nomination which is kind of crazy shocking i mean coming off of super bad like the whole character is by the way absolutely absurd yes (laughs) Absolutely well, we'll, absurd. We'll get to the casting actually in a little bit. Um, I want to talk about like like oddities, like Royce Clayton playing 
uh, Miguel Tejada. Yeah. That's like. Yeah. Well, that's a, there's only. It's I like mean, a time warp. There are almost know. no speaking parts among the players. David, yeah. I thought the, the guy that played David Justice was phenomenal. Um, but besides that, it was a real hit and miss. But we walked, we saw a lot of the players wandering around, the, the actors playing players wandering around. Um, they got a guy, the very Barry Zito guy looked exactly like Zito. Exactly. Uh-huh. Um, and they had a really good Randy Velarde. And besides that, there was there was almost no correlation. Yeah. So it was very strange. Well, I'm in a, in a twist of um, time and space. Um, this series is called SF Cinema, Greatest of All Time. This is neither an <laughs> SF piece of cinema. And we're going to get to it. I reviewed Moneyball, and it is the most controversial thing I've reviewed. I remember I gave it, it well. I gave it a lukewarm review, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but I was, you know, I was objectively, uh, you know, I was wrong. I mean, other people liked this movie. I think there was a bias with people who were from here and maybe people who were a little too close or loved baseball too much. Um, it was critically absolutely acclaimed. And I want to tell you, I'll, I'll get to my review, but I didn't know. Because I, I see the screening. I don't know what the reviews are going to be. I write the review in almost every case before there has been any review. Maybe Variety and Hollywood Reporter are out. But I thought everybody was going to have problems with it. Um, so what I wanted to do, even though I have my criticisms and you're close to the team and you probably see some things that are right or wrong, I want to talk about what they got right. Um, and I think there's a pretty good list. Yeah. Um, I would start with uh, uh, the dialogue. Sorkin and Steve Zalian, who Steve Zalian's local. He, I think, he went to Lowell. Um, wow. He's a San Franciscan. Uh, Schindler's List. Um, he is just absolutely a fantastic writer. And Aaron Sorkin, like on his lead up to Social Network, but doing the West Wing thing. There's some fantastic dialogue in this. There's rich teams and there are poor teams. Then there's Fifty Feet of Crap. Then there's us, I love you know. That. I mean, that's that's. Like, we still hear that around the A's, by the way, a lot. Yeah. People people will pull that out, and it's often still apt. So that's that's my. I'm going to start off with dialogue. The yeah. dialogue is fantastic, and um, you know, whatever it lacks in action, whatever it lacks in an actual, you know, sports moment at the end, uh, the dialogue is great, and it keeps things moving like it's an action movie. So I would go to the dialogue. What did you What did you think they got right? Yeah, well, um, going to the dialogue, because I rewatched this last night like a good student, uh-huh. and um, the there's one part that baseball fans quote all the time, which is uh, the Billy Bean and Ron Washington go to Scott Hatterberg's house to try to convince him to sign with the A's, which, of course, that's that was one of the absurdities. That doesn't happen. <laughs> um, but Billy Bean's saying to Scott Hatterberg, oh, first base is easy. Yeah. No problem. And tell them Wash. And Wash says, uh, it's incredibly hard. And people people quote that all the time, especially when talking about playing first base. <laughs> yeah. It is incredibly hard. And great timing. But yeah. it's, there's a little line after that yeah. that made me laugh. I'm not even sure I noticed it. I'd seen the movie at least two or three times before last night. I'm not sure I noticed it. Um, Hatterberg then, Chris Pratt, Pratt then says, oh, you guys want me to replace Giambi. What are the fans going to think? And <laughs> the Ron Washington character says, oh, maybe I can teach one of them, <laughs> which is great. So dismissive of Hatterberg's potential at first base, which yeah. admittedly was not great. Yeah, no, that was a that was a nice one. Um, 
uh, that actor, I have his name here. I want to give him give him the proper credit because he was in about four scenes and nailed them all. Brent Jennings. Yeah, terrific. He was terrific. Ron Washington. Billy Bean, you've been around him. Um, I thought Pitt's performance was very mannered, but um, in the beginning it was bugging me, and then I just grew to like it. And the dedication, little things, like in... One scene early on, he's wearing like Dockers and this Reebok jacket. And later on in the movie, he's wearing the pants that go with that Reebok jacket with a totally different shirt, <laughs> you know? And I mean, they're a little, it's almost like Easter eggs in there. Uh, oh, Bill, that's a, you don't have to hide. Bill Van Niekirken, our librarian, is here. Oh. This is a regular in, um, in uh, this archives, uh, you know, setting here that Bill is going to come in, our librarian. Hi, and. He's Good. looking for stuff. Will you come over and you can even use my mic and just let us know what you're looking for? That's what sure. we do. And just r- real quick, let us know what you're. Well, I'm looking for. You, you gotta, you gotta be in the mic. Oh, yeah. yeah. This mic, right here. Okay. Well, I'm looking for two different things, uh-huh. very different things. I'm looking for, for some rap bands. Uh, okay. A rap artist called Paris. I know Paris from Oakland. <laughs> yes. We're talking about Oakland, Bill. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not surprised. <laughs> and Make then, way um, for the Panther. I'm going to report you some... Par- I'll get, a, get you a okay. Paris mixtape later. Well, then you probably know this other band, Digital Underground. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then I'm also looking for Boots Riley. I once got busy <laughs> in a Burger King bathroom. I have the Boots Riley photos, Bill. They're in... Uh, I loaded them in with Pam the Funkstress when I did a feature on her. Um, <laughs> I don't know what you're doing a story on, but it's the best story in Chronicle history. I'm mad I'm not doing it. Well, somebody's writing a book, actually, and is just looking for photos okay, good. to illustrate the book. So you can still do it. I can still do it. Yes. Then I'm, al- then I'm also looking for pictures of the 1964 debutante ball. <laughs> all right. Just, j- just to cover all the bases. Nice. Yeah. That, I would read that story with all of those elements involved. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Vilban Niekirchen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Always fun to have him visit. That's the fun thing about this podcast studio. Just Bill drops by, you ask him what he's looking for, and it's like... Rappers and debutantes. It's content. Good content. Um, Billy Bean, I was yes. asking you about him. What did you think about the performance? Well, I remember your review because you said man- something about Mannered, and um, I sent you an email immediately and said, he- Brad Pitt, for, you know, I have, I have my own issues with the movie, but Brad Pitt nailed Billy Bean. I mean, I was, there were times, the first screening I went to, where I, like, my jaw dropped because he would just look at somebody. Uh, and it was like the same look, Billy. Is it like, how do you do that as an actor? How do you capture the way somebody just glances at someone? Like I was, I, I mean, it gave me chills. There were moments, his portrayal of Billy Bean, I felt, and they look, they do not look alike. Yeah. But I felt at times I was watching Billy Bean. And I, obviously I know Billy extremely well. Uh, and he, <laughs> Billy laughs because he caught some of the mannerisms that Billy has, like where he's constantly snacking, which he is. And he also <laughs> has food on his shirt, yeah. which he often does. Yeah. Um, so it was uh, like all the little little nuances were amazing, but right down to just the way he would glare or smile or a little kind of goofy aside to somebody, just nailed it. How did he feel about it? Because I, I don't see him as someone who calls a lot of attention to himself, and it gets into his personal life. His wife, Robin Wright, probably in more scenes because she's just in one. I'm guessing she got on the cutting room floor, but... Um, there's a daughter in it. I'm sure that's a composite for multiple children. Um, but how, how did he feel about just being a part of this? 
I I think he, from having talked to him about it over the years, I think it was mixed. Mm. Uh, he and Brad Pitt got to be very good friends. Um, and I think he enjoyed that. I think he, he he enjoyed seeing the whole process. But, you know, there was trepidation about having the personal life. And some of that was fictionalized. Yeah. Um, but he, you know, the... I think that there there was good and bad in the portrayal, certainly, and mm-hmm. I, I think you know that that can be tough to see on screen. But man, it, the between the book and the movie, Billy Bean has uh, has gotten so much out of it, just in terms of acclaim. He is now wanted on every speaking circuit. He's made a load of money speaking. Um, he, I think, he knows he has no room to complain. And besides, once Brad Pitt's playing you in a movie, I don't think you're going to complain anyway. So. Um, I, I think there was a little bit mixed, but mostly anything he would say on the record would be, I'm sure, very glowing. Very glowing. Um, one more thing I liked, the Oaklandness of it. Yes. And uh, where it really got me was um, the Coliseum Bridge. Walking across the Coliseum Bridge, let's go Oakland, and... That just felt to me. I mean, I go to Warriors games more than A's games, but I went to Warriors games when they were like the A's. And all of a sudden, I was just like, oh, these people are trying to get it right. Right. And um, Wally Pfister is the cinematographer who is it's one of the best things about the film. He is, you talk about the screenwriters getting two of the best. He's the one who does, you know, all of Christopher Nolan's films, The Dark Knight and Inception. He is one of the greatest living cinematographers. And he came out to shoot Oakland. Yeah. And I mean, the port cranes are there. There's one scene with one of the uh, Alameda bridges in the back and, and uh, Billy Beans having a reflective moment and he's on the phone and, and the port cranes are in the background. Um, the inside of the Coliseum is filmed in a way that just gets to the grittiness and the, you know, bailing wire and paperclipness. Uh, I'm just putting this at the end of everything here. But, but, it, but it also looks good, yeah. which is amazing. He made the Coliseum look good, but it does it. It's kind of gripping. You know, when, when you see it all the time, it's like seeing it with new eyes yeah. when a master cinematographer takes a look at it. And really, there's some shots where it's just people walking down like the the exterior sort of corridors toward the, you know, the, toward the clubhouses and stuff. That it's just, it's just so gorgeous. And it's not. I mean, it's just a kind of dilapidated old stadium. And it's I, I really enjoyed that. They did capture a lot of the the nice essence of the Coliseum and, and the franchise. And I I wonder if that was some of that was Brad Pitt or maybe it was just some of the producers and the filmmakers getting to know the people in Oakland and wanting to do that. But um, usually when you see that in a film, it's from a filmmaker who is from that place. And they are specifically going to make a film about that place. There were details in here. Steve Vai doing the uh, the national anthem. That's yeah. what you see when you come here. Greg Papa, yeah. who I know I've heard him on the, the air, is very critical of the film – you know, Greg Papa, you're watching this film and you're He's from here. He's getting residuals from it, so yeah, I shouldn't be too, yeah. too critical. I mean, it, 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 hey, they got Greg <laughs> Papa. So I, I just felt like whether it was Pitt or someone else, they were making an effort to give Oakland a solid. They had a location manager. I wish I could remember his name because I, I remember talking to him for a story who was local. Yeah. And I think he was responsible for 
finding a lot of like the the cranes and the you know figuring out where Billy would drive around and, yeah. and that sort of thing. But they really did. I mean, they obviously did due diligence on most of the things that they did. Yes, <laughs> there's a qualifier there. Most. most. So what okay. what are a couple? That... So my favorite um, was we, we they did they did most of the filming when the team was on the road. Yeah. But there was one time we uh, the team was at home and we're all waiting to get in the press box, which is unusual. The press box is all closed up. And they said, no, no, we're filming, so you can't go in. And we thought, that's weird. They finally opened it up, and they let us walk in the press box. And their press box is filled with about 20, 45-year-old white guys wearing coats and ties. And one of them had a fedora. Fedora. (laughs) And here's like this very, you know, multi-generational, very diverse group of baseball writers waiting to get in and wearing you know jeans and you know khakis and t-shirts uh with the and i think that they took one look at us and looked at what they had and i don't remember seeing any press box people in the at all in the film so i think they must went whoops we we didn't didn't check that out very carefully but it was you know at that point it was like eight years before like (laughs) How did they mess that one up? Come on. I mean, in, in at the Chronicle, the only two people who wear fedoras are me and David Wiegand. <laughs> and Joel Selvin used to. It's it's all in the arts and entertainment section. No sports reporter no, is not wearing for quite a fedora. Some time. I'm surprised yeah. one of them didn't have like the little press card press, in the brim. The press card. Um, I reviewed it and as I said, um, I went in blind. I did not have any, you know, problem with anybody making this movie. I was a little bit wondering how they'd do it. And I gave it a, um, we call it a friendly three. So let's getting into the details of the Chronicles little man rating system. A man clapping out of the chair is one. A man just clapping is two. Sitting is three. And sleeping is four. Empty chair is five. That's the code we use when we turn it in. A friendly three is when you're in that tight spot between a three and a two. So you're between a clapping guy and a sitting guy, and you end up kind of overcompensating. You know, you're, it's a sort of middling review, but you're you're pushing it toward the better side. That was my Moneyball review. I did not tear this film apart. No, I said it did a lot of things right. The things we talked about. My problem was, I felt like they were trying to force a sports cliche movie into a movie that's not about sports cliches. And, and the 20-game win streak was treated like this, the natural moment when, you know, years later, the, the A's had not won with this system. And, and the, you know, after that 20th... So I, I had that problem. I had that problem. And then I, I just had a little bit of a pacing problem with it, too. Um, I watched it again. I allow myself... I call it lasagna effect. Like, lasagna tastes better the second and third day sometimes. Yeah. This was a lasagna movie. I watched it again. The things that bugged me didn't bug me as much. The things that were good. Um, I, this isn't a full mea culpa. I don't regret what I did. I actually, I've used this review. And, you know, if I go talk to a high school, I'll say, like, I gave this a bad review. I got a lot of heat for this. It hurt me personally. At the time, I was a, you know, 13, 14 year Oakland resident. And I had people attacking me saying that I was doing it because I hated Oakland and that I'm racist, you know. Wow. It, yeah, I mean, it. it, it it was a none of what happens to me as a reporter here is really tough. Right. I, I don't have struggles, but that was a, a week that was, you know, not as much fun as some of the others. 
Yeah, that's surprising to me. And then and then I added on with my, that's but Billy Bean was Brad Pitt did a great job. Sorry, Peter. No, it's okay. <laughs> it's all good. No, and and uh, and I know you also. You know, you wrote an article showing some of the things that were right and wrong about it, and you had been covering it. Um, probably the most uh, controversial review I wrote. I realize now that a lot of my problems were things that a viewer outside of you know the Oakland A's market, it's not going to bother them. It, I recognize now it bothered me that Mulder, Zito, and Hudson are not in this movie except for they show Hudson blowing a game, right? Like his back, and then Bradford comes in and you know he's he's the. Uh, but that's the book too. That's yeah. the criticism of the book is there's no big three. There's no Tahato is the American League MVP that year, yeah, and he is referred to once in the book Money Ball. Um, and it's somebody saying, I think Billy, saying disparagingly, McGill swings at everything to Hada. So in that case, it, that's more the book is being to blame than, yeah. than the filmmakers. Well, I, I wanted to say, so recognizing that I was wrong. I mean, objectively, <laughs> this is a great film. We're inducting it in the SFC greatest of all time after Zodiac. It's the second one. Let's talk about some things they got wrong. Um, or, or, or injustices that were done. Um, I'm going to start. And then, uh, if one of mine is one of yours, you jump in. If not, you give me one of yours. The TV 36 reporter, (laughs) um, who is running up to people in the, in the, uh, locker room and saying things to Jason Jeremy Giambi, like you spend a lot of time at strip clubs. (laughs) You spend a lot of time partying. You spend a lot of time at strip clubs. You spend a lot of time partying. Do you resent all of the uh, attention that you get off the field? I don't. I love it. You spend a lot of time in Las Vegas. I do. I feel great. Like I said, I did a lot of work to get ready. Excuse me. Can you please get out of my shot? She bugged me. uh, Yeah, I didn't. I, I, that bugged me, but only slightly because there has yet to be a movie in which a, especially a female sports reporter is is accurately portrayed i was just happy the usual cliche of the female sports reporter is their her like trying to slip players their her number or okay. you know flirting with them so i like it hey if she's somehow this crazy mike wallace you know tv 36 yeah. what i mean that this is just not something that happens in locker rooms so you, does, does tv 36 have a full-time beat reporter covering the do they still exist i don't <laughs> I think, think they've they ever do. had a any sort of coverage of any local sports, have they? Yeah, I think that uh, is it's 20 or 36 dance party. Dance, One of that's them's... them, yeah. yeah. And that's the Yule Log, is that? Yule Log, oh yeah, yeah. I love the Yule Log. Yeah. yeah, so that's them. I don't think they're a big sports journalism presence, which is probably why they they chose them. But So so what, what bugged you? Um, the portrayal of Art Howe uh, front and center, it was, and I know it was for dramatic effect. You have to yeah. have a foil for your Billy Bean character. And they did butt heads. I would have liked to have seen it be more honest in the yeah. way they did butt heads. But um, Philip uh, Seymour Hoffman's portrayal is so unfair. I mean, he's this sort of dumb, backward, um, <laughs> unpleasant guy. Yeah. And Art Howe couldn't be further from that just a a wonderful gentleman um in fantastically good shape by the way and he took a lot of pride in that treated everyone with absolute respect including billy bean and they did have some very big arguments and he still always treated him very respectfully so um i think everyone around the a's felt 
horrible about that. Um, from range range from horrible to really like flat out outraged and about that portrayal. Backing up to the a man who is in very good shape because your art how and I mean Philip Seymour Hoffman rest in peace one of the greatest actors of of our absolute generation. Um, not looking good in a baseball uniform no, no. and and to compound it <sighs> billy bean gets brad pitt right like the best looking guy so you know unfair. thelma and louise with the with the cowboy hat and blow dryer yes. you know so super unfair um and i i mean art howe is just one of the nicest best people in baseball yeah. and that's how many people especially non-sports fans who've seen that movie that's what they're going to think Art Howe is. And some, I mean, for dramatic effect, again, like he spends most of the movie complaining about his contract. In yeah. real life, Art Howe was signed to be on that year. They weren't ever, you know, they did uh, battle over whether Pena was going to start over Hatterberg. That was a constant running battle. If they had done that and done it in sort of a mutual respect, but we still disagree kind of way, yeah. sure, that would have been, I think there was still would have been dramatic tension. It wouldn't have been so horribly unfair. But yeah, that's... That's my my A number one. And then the rest of it is all kind of just piddly baseball deal, you know, kind of thing. So they wouldn't fly to Cleveland to try to make a trade, you know, sort of the real <laughs> obvious stuff. Yeah. But I guess you want to – you need to have your characters moving around. You got to have and, them moving around. It's or Aaron yeah. Sorkin. They got to be walking and talking. They got to be walking and talking. The, the, the one I looked up, I remember immediately after I – got out of the theater was I immediately assumed, well, this Grady Fuson guy can't be real because <laughs> no one would do him like that, right. you know? And then not only did I find out he was real, but I think at the point that the movie came out, he was employed by the A's. No, he, he in fact, oh, he'd come back. He had come he'd back. come back. So the, the, that was another somewhat injustice, although the Grady Fuson, to his credit, has um, laughed this off the entire time. When the movie, God, when the book God came out, he, gets, he, got, he got some flack when the book came out, and yeah. then when the movie came out. He had left the A's for a better job. They had given uh -huh. him permission to become the uh, Rangers, I think, assistant general manager. Yeah. So he'd left for a promotion before 2002, which is yeah. obviously the period that is covered here. So he wasn't fired, like none of this. And then he's since come back. He's a, and he's a, also a wonderful guy, funny. But yeah, he's just he's kind of just almost enjoyed this and like made it made the whole thing a joke. But he does say his wife is very upset about the well, whole it's, thing. Well, it's it's so over the top that you almost like as a as a viewer the BS detector goes off. You know, you don't put a team together with a computer, Billy <laughs> Google boy. You know. I mean, so um, so true. That bugged me too. And then the the missing. I want to put up like get get them on the milk carton. The missing big three yeah. and Tejada. I mean, yeah. like, Tejada. We'll just leave. Yeah. We'll leave just him out. Just all the reasons they actually won that year. Eric Chavez. Yeah. I mean, really. I mean, David Justice gets a lot of screen time, uh -huh. but he was a bit player for the A's that year. Yeah. Um, but the thing, and so I kind of struggled with that, but the actor, and you might have the list there, the actor that played Justice, mm -hmm. really, he, for me, was one of the best parts. He was phenomenal. He yeah. captured kind of the swagger. It's Stephen and, Bishop or yeah, Stephen, Stephen Bishop. Yes, yeah. yeah, he was wonderful. He did a great job with that. And while I think it, um, Justice's role with the team was blown out into, into too much, maybe just because he was one of the few named guys on that team. Yeah. Uh, he was terrific. He really, he really kept, David Justice was every bit kind of that cocksure kind of, I loved the Billy Bean and David Justice talking at the batting cage where Billy, where he says, you're paying me $7 million. So I am special. And Billy goes, yeah, the Yankees are paying 3.5 of that. 
So you'll play against them. So that's how highly they think of you. I love that scene because that kind of really was where David Justice was that year. He thought he was still a big time guy and he wasn't. And it was, um, I think he did struggle with that. So I did like that. He also has arguably the best scene in the film for the Oakland fans, which is when he's trying to buy a (laughs) soda and it costs a dollar. Which also is not a thing that's true. Not a thing that's true. Dollar, what? Welcome to Oakland, DJ. Oh, you gotta be shit. And then he brings it up again on the plane. And actually, one of the really nice scenes with uh, Jonah Hill, who I don't think he should have been nominated for an Oscar, but at the time, you know, this is the guy who had been in Super Bad, and it was a bold casting choice. There's a lot of boldness to this movie, and I want to get into the legacy now. Um, it's definitely, you know, when we bring up best Bay Area films, it's a film that comes up, best sports films it comes up. Um, I think people look back on it fondly. Um, we've talked a little bit about that, like how the players and Billy Bean and those people look at it now. Um, I'm wondering how it comes up in your life, because you've had, at the time of this um, recording, the Cleveland Indians have won 19 games? 19 in a row, yeah. 19 in so a row. They would- potentially tie tonight as we're recording and probably will because they're they have their best pitcher going against a very bad team you've written a couple of stories about it you've gotten in touch with some of the people lately i wanted to get your perspective what do you see as the legacy of this film not just you know broadly but also within that organization well i i think there's some pride over the fact you know this was a team that really when you look at it the, the things that they can hang their hat on are they did make the best of very limited resources mm-hmm. for a long stretch. Billy, Billy Bean is in his 20th season as GM, and they have yet to advance. They've advanced beyond the first round of playoffs one time, and they have not won at all. So this is what they hang their hats on. And the movie really emphasizes that. And mm-hmm. then it's Brad Pitt. It's a big deal. There was a world premiere in Oakland, which that was wonderful. You know, you've got Brad Pitt walking down a red carpet in Oakland. Mm-hmm. I think people were really proud of that. And there, there's movie, some movie memorabilia up here and there. So I talked to, when I was writing this story about the Indians going for the A's 20 win streak, uh, I talked to Dan Otero, who played for the A's a few years ago, also played for the Giants quite some time ago. And he's now with the Indians. And he said, I, yeah, I remember walking by and seeing all those sort of the money ball posters and, you know, seeing all, all the 20 ban- twenty win banner signs. And now we're chasing that history. Uh-huh. So the 20, though, it was sort of a little bit of a, as you mentioned, forced in as kind of like the, the sports element, the 20 win streak. It was a big deal. Now it might go away. <laughs> yeah. I, although I read your story and it seems like the players are completely cool with it. Yeah. Um, they're not going to go Mercury Morris and... You know that they're putting it in perspective, and yeah, they're not the Miami Dolphins. They're, uh, they're. I think they are. Uh, you know, it, it, this is yet another opportunity for them to talk about it. And they're yeah. always, if anybody wants to talk to any of those guys about that season and about that streak, they love it. I mean, and, um, Eric Burns said it's, you know, the, the giddy feeling they all had every day was just something that's like you'll never forget yeah so it was special so and i think the movie did capture that so it was wedged in and they know they didn't win the world series mike Sosha always likes to to tell me and um when i did a Moneyball story when the the thing came out mike Sosha said you know the angels didn't win 20 in a row then but they think they went 17 and three in the same 
stretch, mm-hmm. which is and they kept right right up with the A's, which is extraordinary. And then they go on to win at the World Series at the end. And he said we had a bunch of kind of misfit guys in our bullpen, and we had some guys from independent ball. If Michael Lewis had come and written the same book about us at the end, we would have we won, the World, won the World Series. <laughs> you know, and and I think that's something that's unique about this film that you know, its legacy and how people are going to look back on it might change based on whether in the next five, ten years, assuming he stays with the A's, which I think he will. He's got, you know, maybe he's got money involved now. I don't know. I mean, he's a part owner. He's a, yeah, he's got a small Microscopic percentage. owner. Yeah. Anyway, what, I, I think it becomes a little bit of a different film if he either wins with the A's or goes somewhere else. And but it's always going to be a time capsule of this period, a pretty fun and different period in A's history. Yeah. Um, and, and emphasizes how Billy Bean did kind of change the game. And one thing the movie did a pretty good job with, that the book did a great job with, and the one real insight that Michael Lewis had that where I went like, wow, I did not see that, and it's you're absolutely right, is the the idea that Billy Bean was trying to do everything he could to get players who weren't like himself. Yeah. He had not been scouted well. He yeah. was scouted for the wrong things. He was trying to get away from He didn't want him. Yeah. He wanted better players. And I thought that was such a great insight. And I think the movie got that pretty well, too. And and I think that's, a, again, another credit to Sorkin and Zalian and, and Pitt, whatever his involvement in, in the story was. Um, that aspect of it, and honestly, the daughter with the guitar, like... I wasn't sure when I first saw it, but those two little things bring a humanity to it that if it was just about the numbers, Jonah Hill does not get me emotionally involved in this movie. It's Billy Bean, um, you know, not getting to go to Stanford and, and, and having someone wrong him and him, you know, there, there, there's a nobility to it that I think is added with that and the daughter with that beautiful song on the guitar that... Uh, you did find a photo in the Chronicle archives of Billy Bean from his playing days, yes. um, which are f- few and far between. I did. But he does look like a legit player. I mean, you He's... know, and he did make the major leagues. And, of course, he played for the A's for uh, on one of those World Series teams. We but... will post this on Twitter and Facebook when it comes out, this photo. And I'm going to look for some more. Uh, he looks athletic there. He's he does. He's... He's in kind of a sprinter's pose, you know? Yeah, he looks very intense. Looks very intense. Um, I would like to know if he is safe or out at the end of this play, because he really looks <laughs> like might he's giving it his all. Yeah. Uh, Mark McGuire's kind of standing on the base behind him, so yeah. I'm not quite sure what's going on. He's in a rundown. Yeah. Well, I'm going to look for some more Billy Bean photos. Um, oh, tagged out to end the inning, Peter. Tagged out to end the oh. inning. Oh, it's a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> um Thank you so much for coming. Oh, this is a pleasure. Absolute you, you delight. You sound like you're not sick of talking about Moneyball. No, I love talking about Moneyball. I've done a lot of it, but it was great. Yeah. 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 It was, uh, I mean, it really, it's fascinating. How many sports reporters get to cover a team in which a major motion picture is made about that team, which hasn't won a championship, yeah. and Brad Pitt is there yeah. hanging out, you know? So... Well, I, I, I'm glad you're enthusiastic about it, and I think it's um, it's one of the things I like about you as a writer that I feel like you're always um, thinking about the fans. You're not writing for the team. You're not writing for the Chronicle, which we write for the readers. Right. And you have an enthusiasm about what you do that is hard to fake, and I think the fans realize it, and I think that's why they appreciate you. Um, 
So that's my compliment. Well, I think you do you. great that's work. Nice. I really appreciate you coming on. Who and, wouldn't uh, Who wouldn't be enthusiastic about baseball? I yeah. mean, my gosh. <laughs> There's a lot worse things going on. I think baseball's awesome. <laughs> that's one thing. Like, I, I shared an office with Tim Goodman, and I'm like, I can never complain about what I do reviewing movies. There are things to complain about, but who would listen? Right, you know? exactly. So same oh, thing, I, I'm yeah. sure, with covering baseball. I know it's a trial, and you work hard, but... Uh, Thank you very much for coming. Thank you, Peter. San Francisco Cinema, greatest of all time, Moneyball. And um, thank you, Susan Slusser. Fantastic. Thanks, Peter. Thank you to our guest, Susan Slusser, and thanks, as always, to Bill Van Niekirken, our librarian, surprise guest, and soon-to-be Paris fan, because you are getting a mixtape, Bill. I'm making it for you. Leah Garchik recorded our opening signature, and our theme music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks. Become a subscriber and read all of our stories at www.sfchronicle.com. <laughs>